I started to shift more towards staying into leadership roles, especially once I started recognizing that it was a different level design problem. I was designing organizations and I was designing the ability for a product design team to fit better into the organization and get more traction and be more successful. So it became those challenges that drew me. And once that happened, I stopped moving back to IC roles. A lot of junior designers make this mistake. They feel like they have to do it on their own or they have to be the hero or they have to really like knock it out of the park. Design is collaboration. It's a team sport. There is no design that you will ever make that you will ship as it is because you aren't doing that. You are handing it over to someone to implement and it will ship the way they decide it ships, right? So you have to influence and you have to understand and you have to really be sensitive to what are their concerns and why are they concerned? And then on top of that, your customer's concerns and what their concerns are. So. I think just be doing your job means learning those things. We sit between two disciplines always in product design. We sit between the product managers and the engineers. The business requirements come to us from PMs, as it should be, and the engineers are the ones implementing whatever we come up with. And so we have to communicate with those two groups really well enough to understand what's going on and what value we can bring. and making sure that we're delivering the right value for the business and for the customer. What's up everybody, I'm Guo, and you're listening to the Not Just Pixel Show. There's a lot to learn as a designer. So in this show, I sit down with design professionals to understand how to grow as a designer and help you get that UX design internship or job. Let's get into it. Today, I'm talking to Diana DeMarco-Brown. Diana currently works at Mux as the Director of Product Design. Before Mux, she worked both in the developer tooling and healthcare industry. Now, I reached out to Diana in the first place because as a designer, I'm about to enter the world of developer tooling and B2B product design. Thus, on top of talking about both of these topics, Diana also shared what it's like to design in the healthcare industry why she moved towards design leadership roles, and her experience scaling up design at startups. Overall, this was a fun and fruitful conversation. And so with that, here's my conversation with Diana DeMarco-Brown. Diana, welcome to the show. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was daylight savings. It's true. Um, I yesterday. didn't really think that through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did definitely did not sleep until 12 p.m. That was that was rough. <laughs> um, really excited about this one. Um, we have a lot of topics that we're gonna delve into. So, just would love to start from chronologically from early on in your career. I know you have bounced between individual contributor or IC shorthand to manage your role a few times. So it would be great if you can give a quick overview of that trajectory and also just in general, why did you switch around at that time? Yeah. So that first move into management, um, I was at my first role for six years. It was a role that I had gotten. Um, I did my senior capstone project with them at Tufts, then went on to be an intern for them. And then when I graduated, uh, converted to full time and stayed there for six years. So part of it was, was growth, right? Like, I, you know, um, 
I think early career designers still are on, you know, get that message that in order to grow, you have to move into leadership roles. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wish we didn't have that message because I don't think it's true, especially now. It was maybe a little more true then because there were fewer principal architect, you know, staff level designers, but that has changed. Um, And, you know, I always like to be growing in any role that I'm in so that, you know, having been there a certain amount of time, I felt like, you know, that was the right answer for me. But also I do am drawn to management. So for me, it was the right path. Um, You know, even my first year there, I had just converted to full time, but I was managing the interns. I was managing the capstone project at Tufts, like uh, management and mentorship, you know, a few years later built out the first chapter of EXPA in Boston. So that kind of stuff was always um, something that I was drawn to. So management was a comfortable fit for me and was something I wanted to do. So I think that's, that was also a part of it. I was fortunate that I went in that direction because that was the common wisdom, but it, it did also work for me. But subsequently I moved back and forth, you know, often with job changes, but because I missed the design work, I got into this because I love design and having become a manager early on, I still hadn't really lost my taste for it. Right. So I kept gravitating back. Although what would often happen is I would start as an IC and end up in you know, management roles or have some kind of, you know, team lead responsibilities. So um, eventually, once I got a little less interested in some of, say, the pixel level design or the real detailed design, nitty gritty work, I started to shift more towards staying into leadership roles, especially once I started recognizing that it was a different level design problem. I was designing organizations and I was designing the ability for a product design team to fit better into the organization and get more traction and be more successful. So it became those challenges that drew me. And once that happened, I stopped moving back to IC roles. Mm, got it. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about like um, scaling up a design team more on like how do you actually tackle that problem because it seems like it's a very different type of problem than like it is um, yeah like tweaking pixels on a screen um <laughs> which is the name of the podcast not just pixels <laughs> shameless plug on right. the same podcast <laughs> yeah well i mean not that the pixel i mean it's a necessary evil right like in order to communicate to your teams you have to put together often high fidelity designs i will say the hallmark of my career was producing as few of those as possible mm. not just because it wasn't where my heart lay because sometimes you know putting on your headphones and just diving in and like zeroing in on pixels is really lovely um but i always liked the higher order problems and so the least i could communicate to my engineers to successfully get it done like if i could do it on a napkin sure you know and i have had some relationships with different engineers and engineering teams that allowed that at different points in time but you know sometimes you've got a team that's you know, in another country, in another time zone, you know, speaking other languages. And so the best way to communicate with them is that high fidelity stuff. And so there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, you know, after a decade or so, you become more interested in other things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all about the, yeah, like, what can you learn in a new role? Or like right. a new, always, yeah. yeah. New I always like that kind like growth for me doesn't have to be forward motion necessarily, but new challenges and digging in. And I'm one of those people who always, I don't like to be bored. So I like to always be getting challenges. And sometimes you don't get the challenges you want. And that's, you know, right. <laughs> but you know, the challenges are always there. So got it. Yeah. I think um, on a tangent to that, I think mm-hmm. obviously like switching between roles, um, delving into profile, I also realized that you switch between different industries. And so mm-hmm. um, one of the industries that I wanted to delve into was healthcare. Mm-hmm. So I know you have extensive experience designing in this space. Um, some of the examples are like 
clinical documentation, medical mm-hmm. coding software, or tools for trials. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, this is might be my own assumption, but I feel like healthcare is one of those industries where people call it, like, UX dinosaurs, where, like, it's it's really hard to, or, like, process, it takes a long time to make something happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, like, what are some of the biggest challenges working as a designer in the healthcare industry? Right. So it is a highly regulated industry. And certainly when it comes to patient data, you know, there's laws in the United States around that. We've got our HIPAA laws. So, you know, you have to be careful about how you present patient data, how you communicate it. You know, if you're sharing it between systems, the security around that data is important, how it gets stored. So, you know, there is that kind of depends on which element of healthcare you're in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So as you mentioned, I did clinical documentation and medical coding, which are uh, very much in the hospital, on the hospital floor. So that has a different level of concern. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, we were typically involved at places that had really strong IT departments because IT is one of the places where you can gain efficiencies and hospitals run on very thin margins. And the success of any application depends on whether or not the clinicians like it. Right. So the doctors are gatekeepers. You may have an IT department, but doctors are gatekeepers for a lot of things. My applications didn't really depend on doctors, but uh, but nurses. Uh, and obviously the nurses have a lot of say in whether or not to use your application. Medical coders a little less so because that's a commodity um, effort. They almost always are in the basement of a hospital for whatever reason. Um, but but you know, the IT department will look closely at whether or not that tool is, you know, got good ROI on it. Because again, the margins matter. Um, So there's a lot of, uh, you know, there are also archaic systems, right? Like my, my nurses in the, you know, my medical coders in the basement weren't working on great software. And in fact, weren't really technical people. They weren't using a lot of software outside of this particular application for their job. So it's just different things that you have to consider. Um, It was a little bit different when I was working in clinical trials, that is highly regulated, but uh, it's a different dynamic, right? So the software can behave or look different. You're not constrained in the same ways that you are if you're on, you know, in the hospital on the floor. Clinical trials are regulated uh, federally for how they progress, and you know, there's a lot of data overhead and how that's tracked and kept. But um, there's a little more flexibility. But those industries move slow, mm-hmm. um, and they are very hard to break into, and um, it can be tricky. So yeah, it's an interesting business. It's an interesting in- industry. Um, I liked the mission, but I didn't always love, you know, necessarily who I was working for. Right? You know, <laughs> there's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can be working for a pharmaceutical company. You can be working for a hospital. You know, so consider who it is you're working for, because that that's an element too that I think makes a difference. So it sounds like data and privacy is very important. Huge. Yeah. I mean, you can't email patient data, right? Mm, right. Um, unless you have a secure application. So that has implications if you're doing like a system, right? Like normally you'd be like, we can just send a notification, right? Well, yeah. like no, that's not so easy. And so, you know, you'll see there's a lot of, um, and also things like the connectivity of things, right? So we had a medical coding application that was, um, that was also using some intelligence from the natural language engines mm-hmm. to identify things in text to help speed up the medical coding. But what was tricky was not all the records were in, right? Labs were often not there at the time of medical coding. It's hard to hard to make diagnosis without the labs, right? Yeah. So, you know, you had all these issues outside of your immediate control or your immediate system. Like there was nothing we could do to get the labs in quicker. That was on the hospital, right? But it meant potentially, you know, less successful application. 
Similarly, we had designers uh, or engineers designing for clinical documentation who were like, oh, they've got two monitors. We can just use their two monitors. And it's like, well, big assumptions. Let's not, you know, nobody likes to spread a single application across two monitors typically. But also when I actually went to the hospital physically, yes, they had two monitors in their office, but because they were nurses, they were never in their offices. They were always on the floor. And on the floor, they had a network computer that they had access to and their laptops and those two didn't, you know, you couldn't share across the screen. So, you know, so a lot of the assumptions were flawed, you know, so you really have to look at the holistic system for those, Mm. those tools more than anything, because there's so many influencing factors. Right. And it's interesting that some of the, I guess, the main stakeholders are the doctors and the nurses Mm -hmm. on the floor treating Mm -hmm. patients. I'm curious, in that case, like, does research and testing involve actually being in Mm-hmm. the hospitals and in like where their workplace is and like yeah, talking to I was them? at a lot of hospitals um I was there was a beta program that was testing our clinical docu- uh, our coding application mm-hmm. um live so we could see how it was performing and where it was not performing and and to be candid some of the assumptions that were made about how this automated um mm-hmm. suggestion would speed things up were actually flawed and were made by people who could literally never set foot in a medical coding environment Mm -hmm. because they would have known that a lot of medical coders have the codes memorized, although this was being done at the time when we were about to change the medical codes. So Uh it was like the, the, you know, the playing field was about to change, but um, that they have a lot of them memorized because typically you get a lot of the same things over and over again um, Mm -hmm. at any given hospital. It's different, but you'll get a lot of, you know, this particular hospital had a lot of gunshot wounds, right? So, you know, those codes, Uh, you know, your codes for pneumonia, you know, you know, and you know where to look. There's a physical book that has the codes and our Mm -hmm. software was based on that indexing. But if you throw in a code that just was suggested by the system based on the records, they have to pause, look at where they, where it came up from the records, decide whether or not they agree with it, double check. So it actually slowed them down. So there were no efficiencies to be gained by having these suggestions because these were highly experienced coders. Now, again, one of the other challenges was the coding industry um, was having a problem with employees. Like they were aging out and there weren't new ones coming in mm. and the codes were about to change. So the hope was that this tool might help with that. But in the end, I, right. it didn't. And, I and, the, and the effort for training the system right? Because these systems aren't smart on their own. They have to be trained was significant. So hospitals just weren't seeing some of the benefits from it, but you couldn't know some of that you could have known ahead. Some of it you couldn't know until you saw it in the field. So watching people use it and how it affected their workflows. Um, right. Yeah. So that was, I'm assuming eventually scratched and not the, the business did decide to, because the investment from company. So first of all, medical coding is kind of a commodity tool. Um, you can only sell it in the U.S. because we're the only ones with the healthcare system that we have, right? So it's not like you can take it and sell it all over the world. Yeah. You've got a finite market, which is the U.S. Uh, there's basically two strong players, or there were at the time, with two different approaches. And you weren't going to have more hospitals. You weren't going to, you know, because mm-hmm. hospitals are only shrinking and shutting yeah. down. Mm-hmm. You weren't going to have more medical coders. So it was like you weren't going to increase your market share dramatically, um, and this was just kind of meant to maybe give that a whirl, like see if they could mm. unseat the competitor. But in yeah. the end, it, it didn't produce any efficiencies. And these are places where, again, the margins are slim. These are hourly employees. So they had you know, productivity things to hit. So if they weren't hitting their productivity and your software was slowing them down, they were just going to ignore the automated stuff, right? And do it their way that would get them faster. So it was scrapped because on top of that, you had to train the system. And so they ended up not moving forward at the time. I don't know if since then they've changed uh, with the 
with the automation. They did pursue a patent on it, but mm. uh, but yeah, from a product perspective, it just it wasn't the right answer to the problem. I guess that that's a great example of where like designers might have assumptions, but then when they actually like test it out. Um, oh yeah. Same with the clinical out. documentation. There were some assumptions, but once you spent time with the nurses, that changed and shifted as to what they needed and how they wanted mm. to see it. And so, you know, that product uh, was easier to influence because there were nurses on, on the software side as well at the company. So we could have advocates that would say, yeah, yeah, that's really how it works. So that was helpful. But yeah, the, the coding application didn't really uh, go anywhere at the time. For people who are potentially interested in working in the healthcare industry, um, I think we touched upon Mm -hmm. quite a few things, but I think, yeah, is there anything that you would advise them or like things that are just generally good to know before working in this space? Yeah, I mean, the mission is good, right? And that will be a lot of what draws people to it. But I would also just balance that with your expectations because it is an industry that moves very slowly. Mm -hmm. So like you'll be excited about what you're going to do and that's great. But then you'll find out you're not really able to impact as much as you might want to or in the ways that you might want to or, you know, you might not love who's paying the bills and who you have to work for. So, you know, there's just a lot to just go in with your eyes open. Um, but it is a great industry. I do I do miss that mission a little bit since I've left that that industry because, um, you know, it's, you know, you're helping people. Right. right? You're yeah, helping nurses. Sure. You're helping patients. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess it's like a yeah, indirect way of like helping patients is like giving these medical professionals the tools to help them do that. Yeah. I mean, even with medical coding, you know, I don't know if you've probably not had the experience of having to chase down some, a wrong insurance bill. Right. But, you know, the medical coding and getting that right, you know, say you're a patient who's battling cancer. The last thing you want to do is spend hours on the phone with your insurance company and the hospital trying to straighten out a billing issue, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So making sure that they're able to do that correctly is not only in the financial interest of the hospital, because then the insurance company doesn't get it kicked back and they get paid quicker, which is what their interest is, but you're helping the patient because the more accurate their medical record is, the better off it is for them. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's indirect, but, you know, you're certainly helping the medical coders, which is lovely because they're nice people. I've never had customers hug me the way I was hugged by all these (laughs) medical coders. They were really great to work with. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you benefit the patient as well. And so that's always nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would love to very quickly shift gears Mm -hmm. um, into another industry that you also work extensively well it's an industry that you're currently working in is in the realm of developer tooling yeah so yeah how did you transition from designing primarily in healthcare products to building developer tools like were Um, there any overlap in no there wasn't i mean i had actually taken um some time off to to try my hand at consulting and to kind of Mm -hmm. shift gears a little bit um and was doing that when I ended up working at my first developer experience company. But, you know, it was funny. It wasn't something I targeted and it wasn't really intentional to even stay in that space. Mm -hmm. I just have stayed in that space. But I had always worked in very engineering driven companies. Many of my initial um, years in in software were with engineering applications, right? So civil engineering, chemical engineering, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, electrical engineering. Like if there's an engineering discipline, I probably designed software for it, (laughs) which meant that I wasn't actually working as much with software developers per se, but engineers who had switched into software development. And so the developer experience, you know, 
as someone who's worked with developers for their entire mm-hmm. career yeah, and very yeah. closely and had great partnerships, it was just like designing software for my own people. You know what I mean? So it just felt like coming home, you know, because often even early on, I was working with electrical engineers for applications for electrical and en- engineers, which is a very similar energy to working with developers to design for developers. And so, um, yeah, it just was a very comfortable place to be because it's like, I know these people. Right. Yeah. No, it's super interesting that, you help like work with like mechanical engineer and like I feel like for each of these there's like different areas of expertise that you have to understand for these. Well, I think yeah. part of that came from Tufts, right? Mm. You know, I wasn't I didn't come from a visual design background, as anyone who would work with me can attest fully. <laughs> um, you know, I came up through a human factors program, right? Mm. Um, and at the time I didn't even take a software class, which I think I, I told you. So it was more of an industrial engineering kind of focus. Um, mm. It was engineering psychology. We were split yeah. between the engineering yeah. department, right? So, you know, I came from an engineering heavy discipline. And so I think that helped in my first role when I was working with all these electrical engineers mm. who knew I didn't understand electrical engineering, obviously, but I could speak, you know, I'd taken enough semesters of calculus that I could talk you know, that I wasn't thrown by any of the terms that I could understand what we were talking about with digital signal processing and all that. And so, you know, I didn't know the domain, I didn't understand the domain, but I was comfortable talking about it. And so I think just that comfort and being around so many, you know, engineering disciplines, it was just easy for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that's often one of the tricky things for designers is to be able to connect with their engineers or their developers. And for me, that was always easy because that was a space that I was very comfortable with. And so I didn't come in and not that this is bad, but I'm thinking particularly of a a creative designer, Mm. not product designer um, that I worked with who was, is wonderful and a genius at, at his discipline. But I remember him talking once about, his emotional relationship to a color and a material and like thinking that through it. And I was like, Oh, this is the best. Like, I love your thought process. <laughs> but then one of my developers was like, Oh, I can't even. And I think like, it just did not resonate with him at all. Mm. Whereas I was like, Oh, that's lovely. Right. You know? Um, so I don't speak like that. I don't solve yeah, problems like yeah. that, which is one of the reasons I was mesmerized by that. But it's also one of the reasons why I can communicate a little more effectively. I can mm. talk through rationales and I can be practical and we can talk trade-offs and I can speak that language mm-hmm. and I come at the problems in a way that I think is comfortable for engineers. So I think that's part of why um, I just ended up in those disciplines is because my strengths played to that. Got it. Yeah. I think it seems like like you're very influent in terms of like communication with the developers and whether that's like the software and also more on the, I guess, the physical industrial side. Or I'm maybe curious, it's like, the psychology side, hard to say. <laughs> the engineering psychology side. Of <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah. used to scare developers early on when they knew that that was my degree. And it was like, is that therapy for engineers? And I was like, let's find out. You know so, what I'm yeah. thinking kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think nothing on top of that. Like, what do you think are some of the biggest like design challenges when building tools for developers, whether that's like on the software or like, I guess more on the ind- industrial side? Yeah, I mean, developers are a really tough audience, right? So they're, you know, like they know how the sausage is made, right? So it's not like, like when you're dealing with consumers, a lot of times they'll overlook things or they'll assume it was their fault a lot of times, not realizing like, no, we didn't design it that well. But when you design for a developer audience, they know exactly like what you did to get there. They know exactly, you know, more or less, they don't know your code base, but they know how hard some things are or mm-hmm. aren't. And so, yeah, you, you've got like a really 
sometimes cynical, but not always, but like well-versed audience. Mm. And so you need to deliver value to them. Right. And, you know, the other thing is when you're working in a developer experience, and this was just as true early on when I was designing for um, a product that also had its own programming language and the UIs weren't Mm. anything you couldn't do in the programming language. So you had this pressure to be better, more efficient, more communicate, like you had to deliver value or they wouldn't Mm. use the UI. Mm -hmm. Similarly with developer experience tools now, um, you know, you've got the API. So there's nothing they can do in the UI that they can't do themselves in the API. So if you're going to provide a UI for them, there needs to be a reason for them to use it. It either needs to be providing a visualization that's just a hassle to create, right. or, you know, although maybe you don't want to do that depending on the functionality, or, you know, it's just easier to click the button because it's not a high value exercise that they want to really mess around with, you know, building some code, automating, automating a script. You know, so you really have to be aware of where the value add is for the interface versus the Mm. API. And so, you know, um, it helps you place your bets, but it also helps you understand as a designer, like you're not just designing in a vacuum. You are actually competing internally with your own APIs. And so you need to be sensitive to that. Like what's the value here? What's going to make someone want to use this over not is it, or is this for a new user? Like you have to just be really clear about your intentions um, in a different way. Right. It sounds like in that case, would you say like, having a good understanding of code and just, I guess, development is necessary? I mean, sure, but I I don't think it's something you have to come to the table with already, right? Like, Mm. understanding your user's pain. I I have never used any of the products that I've worked on, with the possible exception of, like, AutoCAD when I had to take a half-credit class in AutoCAD, right? Like, I've never been a consumer of any of the products I've worked on, so these are not domains I understand. Um, But... I have always felt that that kept me honest um, in that I don't listen, like I don't have a preconceived notion of how it should work or what they would want. I have to listen to the customers because I don't know what they want. Right? Mm. Um, and that, you know, helps because a lot of times when you have people internally who have domain experience, they make assumptions or build urban myths. Oh, customers want this. I'm like, really? Because I haven't talked to any who do. Right. So it frees you from some of those traps and it keeps you honest. And I think if you're if you're really working, a lot of junior designers make this mistake. They feel like they have to do it on their own or they have to be the hero or they have to really like knock it out of the park. Design is collaboration. It's a team sport. There is no design that you will ever make that you will ship as it is because you aren't doing that. You are handing it over to someone to implement and it will ship the way they decide it ships, right? So you have to influence and you have to understand and you have to really be sensitive to what are their concerns and why are they concerned? And then on top of that, your customers' concerns and what their concerns are. So I think just doing your job means learning those things. And so you don't have to come to the table with it, but yeah, you do need to understand it, but you should anyway, just as part of doing your job. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, being more, I don't know if empathetic is a word, but just like more understanding. It's not the word, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like just being a better team member, being a better teammate in general. Being a really conscious team member. We sit between two disciplines always in product design. We sit between the product Mm. managers and the engineers. The business requirements come to us from PMs as it should be. And the engineers are the ones implementing whatever we come up with. And so we have to communicate with those two groups really well enough to understand what's going on and what value we can bring and making sure that we're delivering the right value for the business and for the customer. And so really collaborating and listening, you know, is a bigger part of the job than doing the design, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah. I think that's one of the untold things about it's working true. in product design. <laughs> yeah. It's because like... that's not how it works in school. I mean, at least I will credit, you know, my undergrad experience with a lot of group projects, right? Which, you know, prepares you for the drama that is the real world. But it doesn't, all the design is in a vacuum. You don't have to negotiate with a PM or push back or or ask for prioritization that you didn't get. Like there's none of the things that you normally would have to do with the requirements in school. And you certainly don't have to, like you stop at the prototype level, right? So you don't have to have those like back and forth or like which developer do I have to check on to make sure that the, you know, the fine pixel level work is done properly or which developer do I need to like really check on? Cause every time it's completely different when they implement it or like, how do I work with them to make sure these things don't happen? Like all those things, which are the biggest part of your job are part of what you learn in school. And so you come out and you're like, my job is to be brilliant. And it's like, <laughs> nah, I mean, sure, but nah. <laughs> yeah. But that's not the full picture. <laughs> Basically, in the beginning, we talked about your like bouncing around IC and also manager. And currently, you're now director of product design, head of design level, which really curious about like what it's like to scale up a design team and like how do you actually tackle that problem? So I think a yeah, general question of like how do you scale up a design team and when you're scaling, how do you create a great design culture? Yeah, I mean, it there's different contexts in which you can scale up and different paces at which you can scale up. I remember I was scaling up a team from one to six Mm. in about 10 months or so. And that felt like a lot. And then at the same time, a friend of mine (laughs) came to an organization and I think she scaled them like from four to 30 in the same amount of time. And I was like, Oh, I guess, I guess it wasn't so much of a heavy lift. Um, you know, and, she was at a larger company building out a larger team to do bigger things. And I was at a startup, you know, just really ramping up their investment in design. I have mostly ramped up teams at startups. So, you know, I'll, I'll just speak to that experience. Um, yeah. One that was in hyper growth mode and, and two that were a little more, you know, cautious or conservative in their growth. Um, it's really, it's a lot. You have to learn the company. I mean, I don't hire the same at every company because every company has different expectations or different needs. And so, you know, if I'm new to the company first is getting to know what they tolerate, what they like, what the vibe is, how can, you know, what kind of candidates resonate, which ones don't. I find it really useful to do things like hiring rubrics and, um, you know, so for those people who've never worked with a designer before can more fairly assess uh, without bias what a good designer Mm -hmm. looks like when they come in. So that's Mm -hmm. uh, a useful thing. Um, And I also, once the team starts getting built up or as the team is being built up, defining the design process, it allows you to interact with the other teams to have open conversations about what they want that to look like. and, And so you can negotiate those things before you staff up or as you're staffing up. And so that you can hire for people who can do those things. Um, And then once people get here, it relieves them of the burden of negotiating every little thing themselves because there's like a described way of working and that's the expectation in the organization. Mm -hmm. And then it also, because a lot of times you'll inherit a person or two and they may be the, you know, everybody either loves working with them or hates working with them depending on the situation, but they identify that person's way of working as the way of working. And when you have the design process, you say, no, this is how we all work. Like, it doesn't matter which one of us you work with, it's going to look like this. And that um, also keeps 
conversations and negotiations from being personal, right? It's like, this is the way we work. It's not like you didn't give this to me or I didn't do this for you. It's like, this is the way we work and how can we get to the place that, you know, more resembles that. And so it makes conversations a lot less personal. Um, And then making sure that everybody's connecting with the product as they're ramping up and working together as a team. So there's different activities that I'll do at a team level. Mm-hmm. Uh, my teams are typically remote. Um, even before the pandemic, uh, they were global. So I, at one point, had team members uh, at a company. I was in Boston. I had uh, ultimately two people in Boston, one person in Florida, one person in Ireland, or two people in Ireland, mm. one person in Russia, and one person in Sweden. So, mm. like, you know, time zones were tricky, um, you know, and we didn't have a great time zone for all of us to get together for a team meeting because that was the, there was like basically a two hour block. And so everybody wanted their meetings in that two hour block. So what we did instead was that was the, I think probably the first place I started with the buddy system to partner up designers and require that they meet once a week. Don't Mm. care about what, sometimes I do. Sometimes I say, review your work, do a critique. Other places it's like, I literally don't even care if you talk about your dogs and cats because it's really about connecting. Um, But making sure that those relationships happen really does a lot to build team cohesion. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah, I think the the buddy system is is a really great example. I think... I've used it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the reason that I was really curious about this, um, just for a little super quick context, um, Mm -hmm. I'm currently like, I guess like, this is on such a small scale, but like, had a design at one of this like student clubs where like, Mm -hmm. basically there are like different teams consisting of designer pm and also just a ton of developers and so as the head of design i'm kind of this is my first time onboarding and also like i don't want to say managing but just making sure all the designers are completing their projects Mm -hmm. and i i think i guess some of the things that i realized was that creating the onboarding like part of things i wasn't really Mm -hmm. sure if it was actually helping them um, like I was creating documents and all these different things mm-hmm. for them, but maybe I should have been more proactive in terms of like making sure that they're okay and like having one-on-one conversations with them or like even like having bondings, like just on the social side of things. But mm-hmm. I guess in the end, they were all able to finish the project. And so maybe that's a good sign. So um, th- that was like kind of the context of where I'm asking from. And- yeah, I mean, documents are always good. And I think having a consistent set of information that doesn't change no matter who looks at it is valuable. Um, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I've come and gone on that depending on how formal of an onboarding process there is at a company. Cause it varies wildly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is useful to have it written down. So, cause you know, cause it's not just onboarding six months later, somebody will be like, how does this work? So having things written down, I think does have a lot of power, but having said that, there'll always be questions or how do I interpret this or what does this even mean? And so mm-hmm. so checking in with people is also useful. And I think that that element of the social element or connecting as humans matters too. Um, you know, I, I worried less about it, A, when I was younger and more focused on like getting things done and getting the output out. But also, you know, we were in an office and we weren't, you know, at the time I was in an office that was very social. So I didn't really have to worry about the social element. In fact, like maybe we overcracked it on that and like could have focused more on work. But, you know, at other places um, and certainly since I've been remote, I have really leaned in on, you know, because I'm always concerned. I, I did once have a boss who wasn't great with boundaries and always was like deeply involved in people's personal lives. And I was like, that's not right. So I've always overcorrected the other way and been like, let's be business. Um but especially 
when I had more remote teams or people who were not physically, you know, I don't think I was the only one who ever met my Russian employee in person. None of the other designers did because she wasn't able to travel to the U.S. because visas took a long, even then visas were taking a long time. And so, you know, so people weren't always able to meet face to face. And so then you do have to focus on the social element because knowing each other as humans really matters and it makes a difference in your working relationships. And especially now that we're remote and there aren't these opportunistic moments over the water cooler, just wandering out to lunch together, just like, Hey, hanging out and dropping into each other's cubes. You have to create those moments and create those opportunities because they do really matter. Um, A team will gel incredibly well. I have a completely remote team at this point and it is probably one of the most tightly bonded teams I've had. And a lot of that they do on their own. You know, they have one-on-ones with each other. Um, you know, the, I do have the buddy system now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we do have weekly meetings. We do have virtual offsites. Um, and we have finally all met in person. So that's good. But uh, but even when we hadn't um, and we were knee deep in COVID, we were still a pretty tightly knit team. So those things really do matter. And I, I think as my career has gone on, I've become to appreciate that more. So it seems like, yeah, the social aspect is also very important. And mm-hmm. I think from that, it will help with like work communication as well. Yeah. You assume better intentions. You just are more comfortable with people. I mean, I noticed, you know, the difference between someone that I was either managing indirectly or directly when they were remote before I met them face to face versus after I met them face to face. And like nothing had changed other than I saw them in an office physically, but the you know, the the impact on our relationship was always really amazing. And so you know, so I was lucky when I had a completely remote team scattered all over the world. My boss was um, very supportive of me visiting once a quarter to each location. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. exhausting. Yeah. But I was like Sweden and Russia and we weren't in Moscow. We were like outside. So like those are long trips. But mm-hmm. he was happy to invest in it because he did understand the value of that. And I do. You don't have to do it all the time. You don't have to make everybody come to you unless they want to. But just physically seeing each other is significant and huge. I know we're almost out of time, so I do want to yeah. end with the final question. Um, oh gosh, yeah. Which is, <laughs> which the question goes, if you're now facing yourself but 20 years old, what career slash life advice will you tell the young Diana? Yeah, I love it. I'm like, oh, such a different time. Because I'm trying to like, do I talk to Diana or do I talk to the Diana of now who would be 20 years old? Mm. So I'm going to talk to an imaginary Diana who's 20 year old now because at the time it was a very different, like the internet was new and (laughs) it was a very different time. But now we're also at this weird time too, right? Like where tech is having hundreds of thousands of people laid off and we're contracting a little bit. And then you see what happened to Silicon Valley Bank last week. You know, I won't even get into the damage that that has done to startups and hopefully that won't happen um, because thank you, Janet Yellen. But um, it's just, it's a strange time, but this, this job, this career will always have legs. You know, if this is the career you're getting into and this is what you like, you can go into a million different directions to figure out which direction you like, right? Some people love consulting. I don't, you know, I, I prefer more stability and more relationship building in my work. Um, not that consulting is bad, it just isn't a fit for me. Um, you know, some people like different domains. Some people love consumer, not for me. But you should know that and you should experiment with that and figure out what kind of, you know, vibe you're interested in. But this is a career that will always be around. Yes, a lot of project designers and researchers are getting let off, 
a lot of recruiters are too. That mm. career path will always be around. Engineers are getting right. laid off. Like everybody's getting laid off. But that doesn't mean this is just a blip. This is just a correction. Mm-hmm. This isn't mm-hmm. technology will always be here. Design will always be needed. And and the demand for good design is even greater than when I first started out. So this is a, a solid career path. And, you know, try not to be shaken by the events that are going on around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that'll be that motivated a lot of people. Uh, I think a lot of like people who listen to my podcast are like, young designers college students yeah grads. don't get nervous it's it will you know this is just this is just something that needed to happen yeah and fingers crossed for a better year and also just a better design <laughs> future in general yeah. just for the for the industry and also yeah design's not going anywhere and it's funny because i've been doing it for a while and every few years it's like Oh, the death of design and i'm like what are you even talking about or like oh or even worse like oh the newness of like this has been around for forever like in the you know this isn't new but um anyway so people keep rediscovering that which has been around since you know this, arguably the 70s so you know <laughs> that's a long time <laughs> yeah but um obviously stay optimistic and yeah. yeah just design will be around i think that's it will um yeah there's no question it will be around as long as technology is around design will be around yeah but um with that that rounds off the episode that we have today diana i just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join me on this show today not at all thank you for having me i appreciate it yeah, hopefully this will be the first ever of the show. I know. I think you have a pretty good chance, my friend. This is my first podcast. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. All right. You can take care. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate your time. And again, before we say goodbye, my name is Guo, and you've just listened to the Not Just Pixel Show. And I'll see you in the next episode.